welcome back to the latest edition of the New Books in German Studies podcast. I'm Darren O'Byrne and I'm joined today by Thomas Weber from Aberdeen University to speak about his latest book, Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi, published last year with Oxford University Press. Professor Weber, you're very welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. As always, uh, I want to start with you first. Uh, could you maybe tell us uh, a little bit about your, yourself and your, your career up till now? Sure. I'm a historian of, um, I guess, political history as well as um, international relations. I'm German, as no doubt anyone listening to me can hear, but I have been in either Britain or North America for the last um, 20 two years or so. Um, I came over first to Britain as a graduate student, and um, then I was, guess, I guess, as socialized as a historian in Britain. And um, I have spent a lot of time on both sides of the Atlantic um, ever since. And uh, Becoming Hitler is my fourth book. The book tells Hitler's story between 1918 and 1926, but this isn't your your first book on Hitler. In fact, you published a book back in 2010 that looks at Hitler's experiences of the, the First World War. So I, I want to start there, if, if I can. Could you maybe just bring us up to speed as, and tell us a little bit about Hitler's experiences as a soldier up to 1918? Sure, of course. Hitler was in fairly ordinary soldier in the first world war he was um but he was not he was not an infantryman he was a dispatch runner who had to serve a little bit behind uh behind the lines he had to take messages from regimental headquarters to headquarters of other battalions and um and and, and other units and the reason why this time is so important is because um well, first of all, because the Nazis have told the story of Hitler in the First World War as Hitler being the personification of Germany's unknown soldier. The argument at the time always was Germany doesn't need the, a tomb for an unknown soldier because Hitler already is Germany's unknown soldier. The argument is that National Socialism was born in the trenches of the First World War, and that Hitler started out the war with being just an ordinary German, as epitomized in this photograph, where we see him in um, amongst a huge crowd at a public um, at a public event in Munich in 1914, where Hitler was just the man in the crowd. And by the end of the First World War, he had become he had become radicalized. So the story went, and he had, through his experiences in the First World War, become the leader that uh, that he was um and i suppose it's in that context that i first started to be, to 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 uh to work on hitler because I started to realize that something in that story just wasn't right i mean people had previously obviously not quite taken his story at face value but they'd seen it as in um, exaggeration uh, or blown up story of a story with a true self that increasingly did not really make sense to me anymore and this was against the context in i guess the uh, early t- um, um, early 2000s that people had really started to believe that the first world war was the um, that it was in the first world war that the key to understand the making of Hitler, of Hitler's radicalization lay. Because, of course, for a long time, people had believed that um, Hitler's own story, that he had already been radicalized um, and politicized while growing up in Vienna, and that the First World War maybe was then the catalyst for him to enter politics. But the 
but then, of course, Brigitte Hamann, the German, uh, the late German Austrian historian, had published a book in which she showed that that is just in, in, uh, unlikely to have been true. That Hitler had created an alternative version of his time in Vienna for political um, for, 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 for political uh, for, for political needs, and that in reality Hitler had not been radicalized by that time yet. And, that's, and so pe- people had moved moved forward to say basically say, well, that that's persuasive. So if Hitler hadn't been radicalized during uh, his uh, time in Vienna, he clearly must have been radicalized. During during his uh, years in the First World War. And that is, in a way, where I started working on Hitler, where, where, as I said a few minutes ago, I somehow just, somehow the, what I knew about Hitler just didn't quite add up. Um, there was just too much in his um, experiences during the war that did not seem to fit the story. And what emerged then from my book was the story of a man who was first of all rather unusual for his uh, regiment because as a dispatch runner of a regiment headquarters, he was cold-shouldered as supposedly having been in a Tappenschwein, a rear area pig, as not uh, as, uh, as, as having a cushy life, which is maybe, objectively speaking, quite unfair, but that's not the point. The point is that... Um, that uh, this was the perception of the men in the trenches, and therefore the story was politically less than use, uh, 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 was absolutely useless for uh, Hitler. And in addition to that, as it also emerged uh, from from my first book on Hitler, even Hitler returned from the war with still fluctuating political ideas. Even Hitler hadn't really voiced um, anti-Semitic ideas. Um, So we basically have Hitler returning from the war, being a man still very much without a a face, whose future still lay wide open. Maybe he couldn't have been developed, he couldn't have developed into any kind of direction, but certainly within the confines of a number of uh, collectivist ideas, there was uh, quite a large variety of left-wing and right-wing um, ideas that, uh, that that would have been attractive to Hitler. And um, so that's basically was the kind of end point of my previous book. And what then happened was that I, I kind of thought I was done uh, with uh, Hitler. And it was also nice to see that um, most people seem to uh, seem to um, accept the findings of my book. But then I was disheartened that people then seemed to, to argue, well, if then Hitler hadn't been radicalized during the war, then it must have been right after the war, either during the revolu- through the revolution or through the post-revolutionary period. And I was disheartened to see that Hitler was now increasingly being portrayed as um, just having soaked up um, all the ideas that were floating around in, in the military in post-revolutionary Munich, and that Hitler was just seen as this kind of typical product of a um, of this right-wing milieu, and this just didn't make sense to me again. Because, um, as I knew from my previous work, um, the political atmosphere of Munich after the First World War was just so heterogeneous, and that's not just heterogeneous between left and right, but also within the right uh, was just so heterogeneous that it was it is just 
impossible to be a typical product of that because of the heterogeneity of that. And it was at that point that I thought, well, maybe I should go back to Hitler and I should write another book about Hitler. And um, and, and the product is, is becoming Hitler, where I've been trying to map out how Hitler turned within a few years from this guy uh, without a face into the man whom we all know. So if he's not radicalized by the war and he is at least less less politicized during the time in Vienna, what can we say about Hitler's political beliefs up to November 1918 when he comes back from the war? Do we know anything about his his worldview at that point? Yes, there we we have some uh, uh, we have some clues. Um, one thing seems to be clear: the one real constant in his life is a kind of um, pan-German belief in wanting to unite all Germans under one roof. It's not necessarily pan-German in the sense of the Alldeutsche Verband, but this really just this idea that all Germans should live under one roof. And uh, this was very much the ideology of a German-Austrian who grew up in, in, in the borderlands of uh, Germany and Austria, and um, who was just outraged by the kind of dynastic empire that he was growing up in. And uh, we don't quite know exactly whether it was as, as a kid or as a teenager that he really do- adopted this idea. It was clearly not just simply a case of of, of, of his family background, because as we know, his um, in his family there was quite a, quite a variety of political views. For instance, his uh, half brother um, really loved the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Um, his sister and uh, half sister loved Vienna, while while he didn't. So it's not a question of being uh, just just a member of the Hitler family, but it is also clear that at least from his teenage years or late teenage years onwards to his dying day, he is first and foremost a pan-German, um, a pan-German person who wants to bring together everyone under one roof. That that's the one thing. That's the kind of safest thing to 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 say. Um, where it gets slightly more complicated. What we may of uh, what we make of some other um, clues from the pre-war years as well as the the wartime years. I mean, for in, in, I think it's in 1915 that Hitler writes a letter in which he um, he 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 expresses his hope that the war would produce a less internationalist. Uh, Germany, where ultimately Germany that would have been purged of his inner internationalism, which he seem, which he deems as just as important as um, as, as as any external uh, victory. The but where it gets more complicated is uh, is what we make of this rejection of uh, Germany's inner internationalism. It has often been understood as a rejection of social democracy or of left-wing ideas. I think, from if we look at the context of uh, Hitler's um, statement, um, if we look at his actions, if we look at his later actions, um, I believe this reading is quite wrong. It is not. I do not see this as a simple rejection of um, social democracy or left-wing ideas, but rather as in 
as a kind of reflection of his um, idea of wanting to bring all Germans together under one roof. So in that sense, this inner internationalism is being directed equally against, I guess, the the black international or the idea of um, of that that Catholics may have uh, some uh, loyalty to, uh, to 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 a force outside of uh, Germany. It's uh, it's it's directed against the internationalism. Um, the kind of the dynastic internationalism, so in other words, the idea of uh, multi-ethnic dynastic empires of the kind that um, Austria-Hungary uh, was, and it is uh, it is almost certainly also directed against um, capitalist or liberal internationalism. Um, those, I think, are the most important internationalism that it is being directed against. Um, it probably is also, um, to some extent, a, a reflection of or rejection of international communism or international socialism. But I do not think that that stood at the forefront of his statement from 1915. Is there any way it could be associated with uh, Jewish internationalism? Or am I reading history backwards there? Um it's, diff it's 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 extremely difficult to say because the very least we can say is that um up to 1918 there are no recorded um there are no reliably recorded words uh, with the exception of uh of of uh, of claims made later in Nazi propaganda that Hitler had already expressed um anti-semitic ideas during the war likewise he had no difficulties interacting with other Jewish soldiers and officers in his regiment during the First World War. As we also know, in his Vienna years, of course, he had um, in close interactions with Jews without any uh, problems. So, the, so there is no immediate proof that this um, rejection of internationalism could have also been directed against uh, uh, Jews. But the the question here is, would the logic be that it would have also been directed against uh, Jews? And there there is, of course, a distinct possibility that that would have been the case. I would imagine that, uh, this, that this could have been particularly um, expressed through, as, also as a function of... Um, of, of his rejection of um, international capitalism or international finance capitalism, because um, that is, of course, also how his anti-Semitism after the First World War is first being expressed. But the problem here, again, is um, even as this regards of his rejection of international uh, capitalism, um, it's difficult to to know what the extent to which is that he may have already harbored views of that kind during the First World War. We do know that after the First World War, in, um, in post-revolutionary Munich, he starts to uh, to to uh, to talk about it. Um, but of course, we cannot deny the possibility that he would have latent views of this kind, uh, that he'd been harboring latent views of this kind um, earlier on. So you touched on it briefly, but I, I just want to sort of bring us back to to Munich. Um, Hitler arrives there in November 1918. The political situation there is, as you said, somewhat complicated. Uh, could you maybe just tell us briefly uh, about what's going on there and how Hitler, who's still a soldier at this point, how he responds to what's going on? Sure. 
Um, so the uh, Munich is in the grip of revolution. As Hitler returns, uh, revolution had taken place in uh, Munich um, on November 7th, 1918, I believe, two days before its um, court in Berlin. The difference between the revolution in Berlin and uh, Munich was that um, the, the revolutionaries of a somewhat more radical kind had uh, carried the revolution in Munich, um, it's, uh, and, and it is now to that Munich that Hitler returns in 1918. Uh, Hitler returns to Munich because, uh, well, because he has to. I mean, he had been uh, a soldier in the German armed forces, or to be precise, in the Bavarian um, army. He had been injured at the end of the war. He had spent the previous weeks in an army hospital close to the Baltic Sea. But now that he was released, he, of course, had to return to Munich to report to the decommissioning unit of um, of, of his regiment. And um, now, rather than do what would have been expected of a man like him and what almost everyone else in his regiment did, namely to accept a commissioning, Hitler is staying on. Hitler, for the next several months, is willing to serve, um, to continue to serve in the army in revolutionary uh, Munich. Again, the question is now, what do we make of this? Do we see in this um, a willingness uh, to support revolutionary, the success of revolutionary regimes in Munich, or are we seeing this as someone who who is um, staying in an institution that is um, that that continues to harbor radical right wing ideas that stands against the revolution, and therefore should we read in Hitler's continued service in Munich throughout the revolution? Um, as he later would claim, um, evidence of his um, counter-revolutionary sentiments. Um, my answer is, is is that based on the fragmentary evidence um, that is available, is that there, that a fairly conclusive picture emerges of a Hitler who is willing to serve um, these revolutionary regimes. Um, the we also have a pretty clear idea that uh, that other soldiers would at the very least not have seen in him a counter-revolutionary um, person because what happens is, is that in the spring of, uh, or late winter and then again in the spring of 1919, Hitler twice stands for election to be, become the um, um, representative of the man of his unit. And um, what the this is significant for two reasons. One is that this is for the first time that Hitler ever has um, has, has has command or influence over other people in a formalized way. But in in the context of your question, what's far more important is that we have a pretty clear idea of the political sentiments of the man who voted for him, because um, the a few weeks before um, elections to the Bavarian parliament had taken place. And at that time, special election districts had been, uh, or a, a special uh, voting, uh, voting um, offices had been set up in military barracks uh, for soldiers who had not been decommissioned yet. So therefore, we 
we we know the election results for the unit, or rather for the sl- slightly bigger unit to which the, the subunit belonged, um, of of the men who voted for him. In the overwhelming majority, I mean, I'm talking here from memory, but I think it's about. I think it's more than 80% um, of soldiers vote for either moderate or radical left-wing ideas. So I would find it extremely difficult to believe that if Hitler had, as later would be claimed, been if he had been seen as a secret spokesperson of everyone who who, who was counter-revolutionary, that uh, men who were voting for left-wing parties would have uh, would have voted for him. And there are various other fragments of um, of evidence, all of which unfortunately imperfect pieces of evidence, such as. Um, photographs, um, film footage, and so on, that would suggest that that give credence to the idea that um, Hitler during that time uh, was willing to serve the revolution, and that he was also identifying himself with at least the more kind of moderate uh, versions of, um, of, of of the revolution. I mean, there are good reasons to believe that he would have not uh, believed in the most radical version of it, even though he continued to serve the Soviet Republic in April of uh, 1919. But interestingly, even later on um, in... Um, during the Second World War, in his table talks, he would make references to him having harbored um, some social democratic uh, views um, in the past. Likewise, um, Konrad Haydn, who was, of course, extremely uh, well-informed through through informers, both on the left and the right, um, reports similar kind of sentiments in, in uh, his uh, early Hitler biographies. And uh, also, it has just been drawn to my my attention, Um, Hitler was also interviewed in the early 1920s by a a Spanish journalist who also reports to him having had those kinds of sentiments um, in the past. So in that sense, it seems that uh, Hitler is uh, prepared to, uh, to, to, to support moderate uh, left book ideas at that time. So the guy who later ruthlessly persecutes the socialists in Germany, it's fair to say he's sympathetic at least to socialism early on? The... Yes and no. I mean, I'm hesitant to say yes, Mm. um, because I... I don't think that he would have. Um, I don't think he he would have been um, open to all incarnations of uh, socialism um, at that time. I mean, this goes back to both what I said earlier: is, is that while his future was wide open, it was not open towards any direction. And also, what I said earlier about the um, about having a pan-German ideas as being the only constant of his life uh, from his teenage years until the day he died. So left socialist ideas, as long as they um, as they were reconciled with a national principle, 
is certainly national Bolshevism was, a certain kinds of social democracy were, were ideas that were not incompatible, I would say, with Hitler's views in early 1919. Um, but this is not to say that uh, Hitler would have had no problems with the kind of socialism that would want to, uh, to, to, to get rid of uh, nations. So he is clearly, his ideas are in, are in flux around this time. And you show how the summer of 1919 is perhaps uh, the key point, or at least one of the key points in the development of, of Hitler's worldview, because it's around this time that he begins uh, training to become a, a propagandist for Munich's new right-wing government. Uh, and it's also in June 1919 that the much-hated Treaty of Versailles is passed. Can you tell us a little bit about how the confluence of these two events helped shape Hitler's ideology and helped sort of bring it on or move it on from what it was beforehand? Sure. The, so, I mean, I argue that Hitler was uh, radicalized and politicized uh, in the summer of 1919. Um, the, but what I do argue is, is that the fact that this happens in post-revolutionary Munich is far less important than tends to tend, tend, tends to be argued it's also interestingly that when when hitler a few weeks later really starts to to harbor or to express strong anti-semitic ideas they are not expressed through a rejection of um or not predominantly expressed to a rejection of um J jewish socialism or jewish communism in the w in the same way that the most popular anti-semitism in munich in the summer of 1919 would have been um so the but 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 through other mechanisms to which we'll uh, uh, surely get later the what i think is far more important then the revolution, the experience of revolution, is the delayed realization of defeat, and it is there where Versailles really comes in. And when I say that that Versailles, or rather the ratification of the Versailles Treaty, um, is uh, Hitler's road to Damascus experience or his political epiphany, I'm not. Some, I'm not suggesting that it was the very harshness of the treaty that uh, made, makes him radicalized. I'm not advancing here the kind of argument often tends to be made by historians who's, who sometimes draw a direct line between the Versailles Treaty and, uh, and, and, the, Second, uh, and the Second World War. That's not my point um, at all. I think in many ways the Versailles Treaty was no less harsh than, for instance, the, the peace treaty that the Germans had implemented against uh, the Russians. The reason why Versailles is so important for Hitler is because it does signify the delay realization um, of defeat. At the end of the war, Hitler, like so many other Germans, had believed that the war had ended in some kind of uh, draw. Of course, with the armistice, uh, German soldiers had still been in uh, standing in enemy uh, land. And um, I mean, obviously, the Germans were aware that the British and the French thought that they had won the war. But at the same time, there was a widespread belief throughout the winter of 1918 and 1919 that the Americans that Wilson and the Americans more generally would make sure in Paris that Germany would get a just peace, that they would get a peace that would reflect what they believed was a draw in the war. 
And it is against that context that first the publication of the peace terms in May of 1919, but then arguably even more so the realize the the ratification because the resigning of the ratification by the German government German Parliament uh, really signified that if the German government, if the German Parliament sees no alternative but to sign this uh, treaty, we clearly have really lost the war. So this delayed realization of, of, of defeat, I argue, is the origin of Hitler's politicization and radicalization. Because what happens now is that Hitler asks himself two questions. And it's those questions that he keeps, that keep on being the guiding, his guiding principles until the day he died in 1945. One was to ask, how could Germany have lost this war? But maybe more importantly, because he doesn't just want to refight the last war, what would it take? How would Germany have to be recast in order to be sustainable for all times? The Hitler believed, as so many people did at the time, that Germany was sorry that the world was experiencing um, a, a rapid change, that there was a kind of emergence of what one might call a move towards, in today's language, uh, superpowers. And so what Hitler was now trying to figure out, what would it take, how, do, how would Germany have to be recast in order to become one of those superpowers and therefore to survive rather than to, to, uh, to, to disappear as all the other countries he expected uh, would be. And um, the... And it is in this context that then Hitler is taking this counter-revolutionary course in Munich. The timing might well be really uh, coincidental, but it is um, the, day or, the day or two after the ratification of the Versailles Treaty that Hitler starts his, um, his, his counter-revolutionary um, propaganda course in Munich, which was done for kind of propagandist within the army that were supposed to uh, to, 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 to help uh, contain counter-revolutionary um, elements or movements in Bavarian society, particularly um, in, in the army. And what Hitler learns in, in this course is, well, I suppose, really practical skills for, for uh, in terms of speaking, but he's also exposed to various lectures about national economy, about history, um, international affairs, um, pretty much about how the world is supposedly being held together. So it is in this context of where Hitler is seeking answers to his two questions, that he is offered various answers in these uh, lectures. The, um, I mean, going back to the idea that, or going back to what I said earlier, that I believe it's wrong to present Hitler as now just soaking up ideas and being a typical product of this milieu that he is exposed to in the military in Munich, is the fact that um, the these lectures are surprisingly heter politically heterogeneous, with um, some speakers um, 
with some speakers expressing anti-socialist ideas, other anti-capitalist ideas. Some are uh, fervent anti-Semites, others are not. Uh, some believe in uh, capitalism, others don't. And um, so it's not an idea of Hitler just soaking everything up, but it's more of an idea of think of a kind of buffet of ideas in that Hitler now, in trying to find an answer, he's arranging his own uh, his his own menu or his own dish out of these quite rich buffet of ideas, and um, it is in that in this context now that Hitler picks out ideological ideas that would form the core to his political ideas and that would provide answers to his two questions, namely as to why Germany lost the war and how Germany would have to be recast in order to survive uh, for um, all times. And the what emerges from that are really two key uh, key answers, which which again would 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 guide him until the day he died. The one was the first one was that the primary reason for Germany's domestic weakness was the supposedly pernicious influence um, of the Jews. But again, this was not so much about the Jews having run the revolution. This is not so much um, at this point about um, explicitly racial um, ideas. This is really, in the first instance, about um, political economy. This is about Jewish capitalism, about Jewish finance, about uh, the principle of, uh, of of charging interest, where Hitler believes that the, it is those kinds of Jewish ideas that had corrupted Germany and therefore weakened Germany domestically and therefore made Germany internationally less competitive in this international uh, competition of countries, which would have, for Hitler, uh, been one of the reasons why Germany had lost the war, but also why Germany would be unlikely to become one of those superpowers. So therefore, the answer is Germany would have got to perch itself from its Jewishness in order to be able to survive. That was the first answer. And the second answer was that the primary reason for Germany's external weakness was insufficient territory, insufficient manpower, and insufficient resources, which is, of course, what ultimately would make him go for Lebensraum for grab, uh, uh, to, to, to grab territory. But the interesting thing here is, and, and also the surprising thing for me was while doing my research, is how flexible Hitler was in finding an answer to particularly to the second question and that it would take quite some time, um, in fact several years, before he would settle on the answer that we're um, ultimately all familiar with. One word you mentioned there I think is really important. Um, Germany needs to pers uh, rather Germany needs to purge itself of Jewishness, not necessarily the Jews. Is there a difference there? Is there something metaphorical about what he's saying? I believe at least initially there is, or at the very least we can say is that the influences um, to which Hitler um, to which Hitler is exposed are of a metaphorical kind in in fact, the people who are closest to Hitler in terms of developers of his anti-Semitism and the people whom he also acknowledges to have influenced him in his development of his anti-Semitism, which is already unusual since more often than not, Hitler does not explicitly uh, acknowledge 
um, the influence from particular people is are people who ultimately harbor a kind of metaphorical um, anti-Semitism. So, um, I mean, obvious people to, to talk about here would be Houston Stuart Chamberlain, the English-born um, son-in-law of, of Wagner and, and author of the um, Grundlagen des 19. Jahrhunderts, and uh, also Dietrich Eckhart, Hitler's paternal mentor, and from late 1919 or early 1920 onwards, um, as um, even later, Elsa, uh, Elsa um, Bruckmann, who for a number of years plays the role of a kind of almost maternal figure, she harbors this kind of more metaphorical anti-Semitism. What do I mean with this metaphorical anti-Semitism? Is, well, they use um, the language of racial anti-Semitism but they ultimately say this is really not. This is really about particular Jewish ideas. So, for instance, Houston Stuart Chamberlain, who expresses use uh, expresses racial uh, racial anti-Semitic ideas that uh, have a direct echo in Hitler. He says privately in I think it's in the letter. Um, I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but he says uh, you can be a Jew without being a Jew, and not every Jew is um, is is a Jew. So he's really saying what's ultimately more important here is that we have got to kind of perch our the the inner Jew in all ourselves rather than to 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 target Jewish uh, bodies. Um, to some extent, something similar was at least initially the case with Hitler's paternal mentor Dietrich Eckhart. Certainly, the case is for is is, is the same is uh, true for for Elsa Brückmann. Um, but the the difficult question now is as to whether Hitler's initial anti-Semitism, as it emerges in the summer of 1919, is of exactly the same kind. I mean, it certainly uses the same language, but the question is, does Hitler, like the people whose influence he acknowledges, does he like them, ultimately think this is a, a tool, this is a metaphor, this this allows him, this provides him with a, um, with, with a tool to talk about the problems of his time, or, does he, unlike all the people around him, is he the only person who is taking this very literal? Sorry, I shouldn't say the only person. I mean, obviously there are other there are other people in Germany and Austria who literally believe in racial anti-Semitism. But I'm just talking about the people who specifically have an influence on uh, Hitler uh, here. The the very least we can say is that it does not take long for Hitler. To uh, to develop an anti-Semitism that indeed is of a literal kind, um, and 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 I'll happily tell you in a minute why I think this is the case. But the um, I th- it's 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 still somewhat unclear to me whether for the first several months of um, his anti-Semitic con- conversion, whether he ultimately uses this as a tool, as a political tool, also as a tool to talk about the problems of his time, in the same way that people close to him were, were doing, or whether he already, unlike them, was taking things uh, literally. And I have to say that the um, that in the right in 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 
researching and the writing of this book, my view on Hitler's anti-Semitism really uh, changed uh, quite considerably. In fact, the German edition of the book ha provides a kind of different um, answer as to Hitler's anti-Semitism. And here I should briefly say, as, for, 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 as, as in a way of context, that even though I wrote the book in English, is, is that my German publishing house, they, um, they, they translated the 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 first draft of the manuscript because they wanted to understandably bring out the book quickly um while i then well, my American and, and British publishing house um, wanted to publish it uh, somewhat later and, and encouraged me to, to, to keep on developing my ideas. And in the process, I realized that this um, idea that I had certainly expressed in the early version of the book that I had expressed in my previous Hitler book, namely that Hitler does become a radical anti-Semite in the aftermath of the First World War, but then doesn't really quite I'd know what this all entails probably until the early 1940s and that it's really only then that in through the dynamics of the 1930s and 1940s that um, it becomes clear what Hitler really wants and that the Holocaust becomes uh, possible. But what I, what happened in the uh, uh, researching and the writing of my book was that I think that this view is is really no longer uh, tenable because what I realized was that anti-Semitism, at least from 1920 or 1921 onwards, is the one area in which Hitler in private is more radical than in public. Because general, generally Hitler would be would be a fairly agreeable person, often in private, who would not sound that radical and who in public would be extremely uh, radical, who also someone who, as a, I suppose as a narcissist, was feeding off the, his, his audience, um, who, or, who would um, just uh, repeat or make stronger every statement for which he would get the most responses, both positive and negative, and also the kind of resp uh, resp um, the kind of things that would make him stand out in the busy marketplace of Munich, and would help to transform him and the early Nazi Party from uh, from 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 one of many small groups into the dominant group on the radical right in in Munich. But anti-Semitism was the one idea where things work the other way around, where Hitler, however radical he of course was in public, he was even more radical in private. So where Hitler in private would uh, would, would, would express ideas that would strongly suggest that by the early 1920s, Hitler had a preferred final solution that was genocidal, where Hitler did believe that the best way of making Germany safe for all times, the best way of making sure that the Jewish that Jewishness would be purged as much as possible from Germany would be through genocide. But because Hitler 
it actually says in an interview um, with a Catalan journalist in 1923. Says, I mean, he t- he tells him, well, I've looked at it from all time, from 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 all perspectives. It's just not possible to do that. For that reason, Hitler is willing to settle for a kind of second or third best final solution, which at that point is is expulsion, because from Hitler's uh, from the logic of Hitler's views, this would still expulsion is still better than doing nothing. It's still improves or increases the chance of survival for Germany in this rapidly changing world. Uh, But what I would also argue is that throughout these years, Hitler's preferred final solution remained genocidal. He just thought it was an it was a kind of dream that wasn't possible. But it's a preferred final solution because he thinks that's the best possible way to uh, to ensure Germany's survival for all times, which is why I conclude in becoming Hitler that the the path from uh, from from post war Munich to Auschwitz may have been long and twisted, but uh, was almost certainly um, less twisted than 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 commonly believed. So you're saying that that. A genocidal solution was more than just a logical consequence of those ideas, and that it was actually maybe even internally expressed by Hitler. I believe he certainly entertained um, that idea. The um, Hitler um, Hitler gives this interview in 1923, as I've just said, in which uh, the Spanish journalist asked him. Um, again, I'm paraphrasing here from memory, but he says, well, so what are you saying here? Are you saying it would be best to kill all the Jews? And Hitler says, yes, absolutely. It would be best to kill all the Jews. Um, but I've looked at it from all sides. It's just not possible. Therefore, we'll do something else. Uh, likewise, um, he had said to a... Um, which unfortunately he realized after uh, after it was too late. He also said in an interview, sorry, not he said in a private conversation with um, a um, right wing conservative in Munich. Um, I think in 1921 or 1922, I would have got to look up the exact year. Um, that Hitler says something along the lines: "Once I'm in power, um, once I'm in power, I will." Um, I will round round up the Jews of, of of Munich. I will take them to. I will take them. I will take the first ones to the market square of Munich, and I will hang them off the gallows until they in, and leave them hanging there until they smell. Then I'll take them off, and it will be the uh, it will be the turn for the next Jews. And we'll do that on every single market square in uh, in 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 Germany until no Jews are being left. That the second piece. Um, this is third piece of evidence where. When was that written? Um, Excuse me. Sorry for interrupting. When was that written? That piece. Um, the I mean, it, it's based on the memoirs of this um, of this conservative. The um, and he attributes this, I think, to 1921 or 1922. I mean, I would have got to look up yeah. the um, the exact date. Um, likewise, um, this is 
exchange of letters between Rudolf Hess and this kind of paternal uh, friend and mentor in Switzerland, uh, Ulrich Willer, where unfortunately we only have the response uh, of Willer to, to Hess's letter, but the, he's basically there responding clearly to ideas that Hess had expressed and, and here, of course, we have to see that Hess was the closest associate um, of Hitler at that time, has ex- had expressed as to how to, to solve the, 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 the Jewish problem or what he considered or what he and Hitler considered the Jewish problem. And he responds that uh, solving the Jewish problem with the machine gun will not lead them anywhere. And then is kind of expressing to them how they get it all wrong about anti-Semitism. But it is still, he is, resp- he's, he, he say, so this would clearly indicate that Hess had suggested that, um, solving the problem by, by machine gun, and, uh, and, and, and there's this there's, there's one one other piece of um, evidence, and where we'd have got to look up the exact details. And um, the I'm not saying that at this point this is all perfect um, evidence, but I would say is what 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 emerges from these uh, four episodes is a Hitler who in private at the very least toys with the idea of a genocidal uh, solution. Of course, now we can endlessly argue as to whether Hitler uh, was just toying with them, whether they would ultimately be, uh, be fantasies or about the extent to which he really was already uh, figuring out how they could be be, be implemented, um, but the I think the very fact, even the even if they were, um, even if they were um, predominant, even if they were predominantly fantasies, they're still fantasies about how to solve the the biggest political problem that Hitler considered um, of the time. But I also think that in the context in which they're expressed, including these kinds of discussions of how Hitler says that he, he considered from all sides whether they were practical, would suggest that this was more than just, um, just, just fantasies. But the key point here is that Hitler at this point does not believe that a genocidal solution is possible. Therefore, Hitler is willing to 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 settle on second or third best final solutions, which would also explain why, for instance, in the 1930s or even up to the well up to to the Second World War, Hitler was willing to go for immigration from Germany or to enter same some kind of Madagascar plans. Those kinds of this kind of willingness on the side of Hitler it tends to be uh, used and, and and I used to say that myself until not too long ago to say that this is a kind of clear evidence that Hitler had not made up his mind yet as to what he wanted to do with the Jews. But what I would say now is not so fast. I think it rather just is a reflection of Hitler's belief that his primary final solution, which continues to exist, he is seen by him is impractical, so therefore Hitler obviously um, is willing to settle for second or third best final solutions. But I think what it also means that if the situation ever arises, 
for um, his preferred final solution to implement, that he would jump at it. And I think in that context, we also have got to maybe look rather more carefully again at orders Hitler gives um, in 1940 and in 1940, and particularly in 1941, not just, I don't think we should just look for the kind of the, uh, we shouldn't just go for the kind of the the, the elusive search for the big, uh, big single order, but we should rather really go back and look at all the evidence, including evidence given in, in court trials of uh, orders Hitler gave um, for um for Jews to be be killed and eliminated uh, during Barbarossa uh, or even earlier in Poland and see what kind of pattern emerges from those kinds of um of of, of orders um what about hitler's interest in in racial theory um around this time so what about his his disdain for for slavs or, or russians etc how much of, of of this type of thinking defines hitler's worldview in the in the early 1920s what really surprised me and maybe this was just my previous ignorance what really surprised me was how little that initially uh, played uh, a role i somehow had always assumed that Hitler's anti-Semitism, that Hitler's racism, also that his racism towards other groups, um, that his quest for Lebensraum, that this would have all emerged a parallel. And in fact, the um, Hitler's um, drive towards the East, his quest for Lebensraum, is often presented as resulting from Hitler's uh, racism. And what really uh, surprised me is uh, that this was rather seems to have been the other way around, and Hitler's flexibility when it came to uh, his non-anti-Semitic uh, racism, when it p- came particularly with regards to looking at, at at Russians and other Slavs, because his initial answer or the the answer the answer that he gives in the early 1920s as to how to address Germany's uh, primary external weakness, which let's remember is uh, a belief in that Germany has insufficient territory, manpower, and resources, is is quite different from the one he ultimately goes for. Hitler simply does not think that Germany on its own is able to become one of those superpowers on 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 its own. Hitler defines at the time. Um, from 1919 onwards, he defines as the major challenge or the primary challenge um, for Germany to be to become uh, to be to be an equal footing with the Anglo-American world, because he does clearly see the Anglo-American world um, is 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 as emerging victoriously from this transformation process in the international system. So his question is, how can we be on equal footing? And he just does he he thinks that Germany just on its own just cannot do it. And so therefore, the for me, surprising um, uh, thing to realize was that Hitler then thinks that uh, what Germany needs to do is needs to enter 
into a permanent and on and an all-encompassing um, alliance with Russia, with a restored czarist anti-Semitic nationalist regime. The people often, of course, talk about the Baltic German influences on Hitler through people like Rosenberg or Schottner Richter. They're incredibly important, but what sometimes get, gets lost is the the context to to ethnic Russians, which to some extent is actually facilitated to Schäuble, Richter, and Rosenberg. The point here is that um, a lot of white Russian exiles had ended up in Bavaria, including one of the pretenders to the Russian uh, Russian throne, and that both these groups and National Socialist and other uh, radical nationalist groups in Bavaria, they believe that for Germany and Russia to survive and for a for the right kind of regime to be restored, for a nationalist Germany and nationalist Russia to restore it, Germany and Russia or German nationalists and Russian nationalists need, need to team up and they need to overthrow their own regimes. And once they've done that, they need to enter into this all-encompassing um, 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 alliance. As a result of that, um, the, that Darius pretender uh, supports Hitler financially, while Hitler supports him uh, politically. And this, this continues to be the case right up to the time of the putsch in 1923. In fact, the, the wife of the pretender to the Tsarist throne is still... Uh, is still um, staying with Hitler's chief foreign policy advisor the night before the putsch. I also found a photograph of Hitler and that wife um, in, um, in in the Hoffman archives, where it had been, I suppose, been hiding in in plain sight, in part because the person had been misattributed in it. But where we do see Hitler in the summer or autumn of 1923, uh, standing smiling together with the uh, Darina pretender. At any rate, so until... So the significance of this in understanding Hitler's racism and also to understand the how unique Hitler's anti-Semitic racism is 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 to 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 realize that until this time Hitler's racism was really kind of dualistic one. It was between Jews and Aryans, but Aryans was just kind of everyone else, or at least everyone else in Europe. So this was not so much about a, a blonde uh, Teutonic Superman, but it was really about Jews versus non-Jews, and that meant that uh, Slavs or Russians could 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 would be seen not as 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 one of the primary problems of, uh, for the world, but rather as 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 the primary solution to what one of the two biggest challenges that uh, Hitler thought Germany had overcome. Namely, he thought that allying himself with Russians would put Germany on equal footing with the Anglo-American world. And what then happens, and we're not entirely, sh- I'm not entirely sure what ex- how this exactly uh, um, ha- how this exactly comes about. But in 1924, a radical and sudden shift takes place. This is uh, this happens while Hitler is incarcerated in Landsberg uh, Fortress after the failed coup. 
it's after Lenin has died. And it seems that it was as simple that, as that Hitler realized that with um, Hitler dead, so it was Lenin dead and the Soviet Union still be around, there was just no pro, uh, there was just no way that this um, nationalist anti-Semitic restoration of Russia would happen. And so Hitler overnight radically changes his racism and his views of uh, Russians. So he, he decides if they can't be um, our allies, then we have got to turn them into subhumans. If we, can, uh, if we cannot have an alliance, we need to grab that territory. It's risky, but we need to do it anyway, because that's the only way for Germany to survive. And so, I mean, it's obviously absolutely tragic if we think about how many millions of uh, of Slavs had to, uh, to to die as a result of Hitler's war. Um, that this came about as as a result of political expediency, as a result of realization that um, an alliance was impossible, and that therefore Hitler turned. Turned uh, radically changed his 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 racism and turned um, to to turn turned Russians into subhumans and then um, adopted a far more racial anti-Semitism. It's also interesting that prior to that, Hitler kind of kept. Um, the kind of anti-Semites of like these racial theorists like Günther and so on, he kept him at them at arm's length. And it is now that he lets them close to him in that Hitler starts to adopt, uh, um, to, to, to adopt their ideas. It's of course possible that now at some point between 1924 and the Second World War that Hitler starts to genuinely believe in his changed views, that he, that he starts to internalize them. But the very least we can say is that there was no direct line to them in that uh, between 1919 and 1924, Hitler had been surprisingly flexible in his, uh, in his racism and in his views of Russians. Do you think that... Uh, I'll start again. You, you're in many parts of the book. Uh, you you present Hitler as strategic and and somewhat calculated, um, which is I think best manifested in his in his flexibility. Do you think you could have written this book twenty years ago? Mm-hmm. Are you asking? Could I have written it in turn? I mean, could I have come up with the answers 20 years ago? Or are you saying, could I have got away with writing it 20 years ago? Well, that, more, more the latter. I mean, Hitler is, of course, the, the idea of him being a, a monster still sort of hangs above everything. But once you break it down, you can sort of see him calculated and strategic. And there is a level of rationality, if you will. Um, at least a Hitler-type rationality. And I'm wondering, is, is, is this book a, a product of its time? And, and therefore I ask, would it have been possible 20 years ago? It's a very good question, and, and I'm kind of hesitant to answer. Mm-hmm. The, on the one hand, I feel to say, yes, it is a product of its time, and there would have been far more resistance. I mean, there's even now resistance, but there's even more resistance at the time. But then again, I, um, then again, I would say that um we of course have to be in mind that if we go back to 
the the first big Hitler biographies, if we go back to the rich, original Alan Bullock, of course, we do have someone who is very calculating. I mean, maybe calculating in a slightly different way that I produce, that, that I presented. Alan Bullock's early Hitler is someone certainly for whom ideology is far less important than, than I, 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 um, I do I do think um, so. The it's not as if I'm now suddenly the first person who who portrays Hitler as a serious thinker, as someone who who is calculating and has an inner rationality. Um, maybe in a way, if I may, um, I may slightly rephrase the issue that that you have um, have have come up here, and I think this may might be about in which um, scholarly and national contacts would have, is it possible or would have been possible to write a, a book of this kind? The, um, I, I, thought, I think if I had written this book 20 years ago in Britain or America or Ireland um, or Israel for that matter, I wouldn't. I don't really think I would have had a problem with that. I think um, there would have been um, an acceptance with it. Had I written this book 20 years ago in Germany, um, I think there would have been a huge problem. There would have been a there would have been a huge outcry. There hasn't really. I mean, I have to say there hasn't really been an outcry um, now that the book has come out. But even though that might be, maybe in part because. Some people haven't quite realized some of the things that I'm arguing in my, in my book because the, if we look at discussions about Hitler and Germany over the next uh, over the last few years, we see that there is still a hangover of this kind of sentiment. It's quite telling that <clears throat> in 2016, as the U.S. presidential election was underway, as um, things in Turkey got out of hand as things in the Philippines got out of hand there was a discussion almost anywhere in the world on how Hitler how and, and whether the rise of Hitler can help us understand the world we live in the kind of new challenges but things in Germany at the very same time were very different the discussion was there was hardly any discussion of that kind and it was a kind of almost obsessive discussion over whether first of all it's it's even it's acceptable to republish mein Kampf not what what we would gain from it or whether there's anything maybe in mein Kampf that we've missed so far but the very principle of whether it is uh, it, whether it is unacceptable likewise there've been all these alarmist questions been asked whether this claimed new hitler wave in germany and elsewhere as, as a result of an uh, of of a publication number of publication of new books on hitler and so on and so forth whether that is um whether this is really uh, dangerous. I mean, for instance, the um, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung uh, is quoting um, Ulrich Herbert in, um, as having said at the Historica Tag in 2016, when there was this huge panel about this new Hitler wave, that he was really worried that uh, that, that Germans might see again in Hitler a person of the highest uh, significance and hochbedeutende Persönlichkeit. And when I look at those kinds of discussions, I'm not so sure whether 
things have really moved on that much in Germany over the last 20 years or so, or whether there is still a problem of really taking Hitler seriously in of discussing questions of Hitler's inner rationality and, uh, and, and, and how he functioned as a calculated political operator. I think we're very, very early in, in that development and maybe things are going to change over the coming years. But um, before I let you go, are you working on anything else at the moment? Um, I'm actually trying to, well, uh, I can tell you what I would like to work on, but I've been kind of constantly been, 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 been sidetracked with things, uh, with, with a million other things and, and committees and so on. What I'm really trying to do is, um, the, um, is finish this book, which I had been writing kind of on the side, um, but then had to put aside, which is kind of book of the first world war against the grain in other words it's trying to map out um all kinds of um phenomena that have normally been written out of the story because they don't quite fit the uh, the narrative um such as continued christmas truth is throughout the throughout the year um improvement and uh, the relations between uh, soldiers and enemy civilians um the interaction between uh, German soldiers and German officers and dip diplomats and Jews in Palestine during the First World War and an attempt to prevent in Armenian style and Jewish uh, genocide during the First World War. Um, those kind of things and the kind of attempt to try to to figure out how are the narrative of, of the impact of the First World War changes or whether it does change if we take all these phenomena into to account and uh, as, as I had written the book, as I completed about 85%, by the time I had to put it to the side in order to finish my Hitler book, I would hope that I'll, I'll be done with that over the next few months. And the, are you planning to write another um, study of Hitler? Um, possibly. The, that really, it in part depends on availability of sources sure. um and 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 questions i i feel i can contribute to um the um the rule i've always said to myself or rather what i told myself after my first hitler book is i will only write another hitler book or a, a, um, if if i feel that i can genuinely contribute something uh, to to, to, to something that we don't understand. I will only write it if I genuinely feel that there's something that I'm interested in and that needs to be resolved. And I will not write another Hitler book just because I can get a contract. And, uh, so it's in part a, re a reflection on that. But as you will have seen on our discussions, for instance, on Hitler and the Holocaust, I certainly do think that there are unresolved questions. But it's, uh, it, it, it then all depends on uh, availability of, um, of, of, of new sources that would allow me to answer those kinds of questions. Well, best of luck with that. Uh, the book is called Becoming Hitler, The Making of a Nazi, published last year with Oxford University Press, and it's available practically everywhere for about 15 pounds 20 euros or, or 20 dollars um, i can't recommend it highly enough especially for anybody who's interested in the development uh, the somewhat complex development of, of hitler's ideas and how they ultimately led to to war and, and mass murder professor thomas weber thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for having me mm -hmm.